You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 19th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Hello, this is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead... Since Hezbollah began its attacks, the IDF has been responding by striking Hezbollah targets in Lebanon. Is Israel opening another front in the war? We'll examine hostilities with Lebanon. Then we'll be in South Africa. 30 years since the end of apartheid, the country is a very different place now as it prepares for the 2024 election. And there's more election news from Portugal. Hi, I'm Carlota Rabello and I'll be here to talk about the new leader of the Portuguese Socialist Party, replacing outgoing Prime Minister António Costa, and what Pedro Nuno Santos might mean for the upcoming election. We'll continue our week-long series on our ageing population, get the latest take on the built environment and have a rustle through the newspapers. And finally, our US editor joins us to look at the state of the media in North America. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. A magnitude 6.2 earthquake jolted a remote and mountainous county in northwest China in the early hours of this morning, killing at least 118 people and injuring hundreds more. Tokyo prosecutors searched the offices of two powerful political factions within the ruling Liberal Democratic Party, the LDP, today, in connection with the biggest fundraising scandal to engulf the party in decades. And international pressure is building over a landmark national security trial in Hong Kong for leading China critic Jimmy Lai, with British authorities calling for consular access to the jailed Democrat as his trial entered its second day today. Do stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, Israel's second war with Lebanon took place in 2006 when the Lebanese Shia Islamist militants, who are funded by Iran, launched a cross-border attack. But there's been relative calm since then, although a UN Security Council resolution, which was signed by both warring parties, has not been implemented. Under the resolution, Hezbollah was supposed to pull back from the border and to disarm. Instead, it's built up its store of weapons with the help of Tehran to the point where it's feared that it could overwhelm Israel's Iron Dome defences and inflict significant damage on the country's cities. And some Israelis now believe that the threat from Hezbollah in Lebanon is more serious than that of Hamas in Gaza. Well, I'm joined now by Leila Mulana Allen, who's Monocle's Beirut correspondent. She's currently in London. Leila, many thanks for coming on the show. How has the situation on the border with Lebanon escalated since October the 7th? Well, on October 7th, of course, what we saw was that immediately after the Hamas attacks, there were a huge number of rockets that continued to be fired in from Gaza to let to Israel. But there also started to be uh, munitions fired into Israel from the Lebanese border. Now, 
Hezbollah fired a certain number of munitions into Israel and then stopped. And really, the take on this is that they did just as much as they needed to do to show that they were in support of the Hamas attack uh, and then stop. Since then, there's been continuous exchanges of fire across the border for several months now. uh, And it has escalated slightly, but nowhere near a full-scale war. What's happened to the civilians on both sides who live in the border area? Well, on the Israeli side now... Uh, people have been evacuated from across that border all down into central Israel and southern Israel uh, where there are these uh, hotels that have been taken over by internally displaced people. Uh, About 70% of the hotel rooms in Israel now have been filled with Israelis who've been evacuated from border areas both in the north and on the Gaza border. They've all had to leave their homes uh, up there. They've been running from rockets regularly. They, of course, all have shelters there, but not necessarily in their own homes. So the decision was made in many towns. In some, they were forced to leave because there is a military cordon now, which is all filled with soldiers because, of course, as all these uh, internally displaced people were leaving, there were more and more IDF troops being deployed up towards that border. So they've all been, uh, people have been replaced by soldiers and it's pretty empty up there now. In other towns that are a little bit further away, the decision has been up to people themselves. The government has been providing hotel rooms for people, but many people fled before that even happened because they were so terrified. And there is a lot of concern that this could escalate further. On the Lebanese side, there has been more actual uh, more actual casualties. So 14 people have died on the Lebanese side so far. There was a horrific case a few weeks ago where a car was shelled uh, that the Israelis said they suspected contained militants. It turned out, in fact, to be a grandmother and three young girls, uh, the oldest of whom was just 12. Um, it was really a horrifying scene, and they all died. Uh, there have also been three journalists killed by Israeli shelling on the Lebanese side as well, a Reuters journalist uh, and two other journalists as well. Uh, and Human Rights Watch came out with a report recently where they said they're very convinced that that Reuters journalist was targeted uh, by Israeli forces. There were five other journalists there who were also badly injured, some of them. Uh, so there has been a lot of carnage created on the Lebanese side of the border. There are also UNIFIL bases being attacked. This is the UN station that's been stationed out there. Uh, they are all retreating inside their bases because there's constantly threats there of things coming through from the Israeli side. So really there is more damage at the moment happening on the Lebanese side. But many Israelis and soldiers as well very concerned. Uh, they say that Hezbollah is a much bigger threat to them. Uh, than Hamas because they're aware of how much Hezbollah has built up its arsenal in recent years. Mm. And there have been reports that Israel now intends to open a second front in the war and go after Hezbollah in Lebanon. Benny Gantz, a former prime minister who's serving in Netanyahu's war cabinet, said if the world doesn't get Hezbollah away from the border, Israel will do it. Do we have any details of such a plan? There are very few details of such a plan and part of the reason for that is that America is very against it. So Almost immediately after the attacks, uh, a group led by Yoav Gallant, who's the defence minister, who's very hawkish, wanted to launch a pre-emptive attack uh, on the south of Lebanon, on Hezbollah uh, installations there. Now, theoretically, uh, because Hezbollah does, of course, run most of the south of Israel, but theoretically there are lots of Lebanese armed forces. That's the Lebanese army posts there as well. But people are convinced that Hezbollah is actually, you know, running the show down there. And certainly they do have the run of a lot of the roads and they have a lot of their posts out there. They direct 
you know, what press can go down to the south of Lebanon, what they can film, what they can do. But to launch an attack like that would be to start the war. And it's important to remember that as much as the Israelis say, oh, Hezbollah are too much of a threat to us, they are going to attack us. Both of the actual wars that Hezbollah and Lebanon have been engaged in, and of course, when the first war happened in 1982, Hezbollah was not a fully formed group yet. It, at that point, it was a war with Palestinian factions and the group, part of this, uh, the group that eventually would become Hezbollah during those years. Both of those times, it was Israel that launched those wars. Mm. It was not uh, people in the south of Lebanon. And so, again, people in the south of Lebanon saying, and Hezbollah too, that they will not launch a war. And as concerned as people may be about whether this does turn to a full-scale war, it is not in Hezbollah's interest right now to do so. So if Israel does launch an attack, uh, Washington has been very, very clear that it doesn't want that to happen, that it thinks that will be what will tip the region into a full-scale conflict. Mm. Now, US Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin, he's been in Tel Aviv, uh, uh, and then he moved on to Bahrain. Now, in Bahrain, he was discussing Houthi rebels, also backed uh, by Iran, uh, and their attacks on shipping in the Red Sea. Uh, We know that global oil giant BP's announced that it's pausing its Red Sea shipments because of attacks on vessels passing Yemen's coast. There's all sorts of uh, concerted naval efforts to protect that major, major shipping route. Uh, Iran behind both of these groups. Uh, is, Is there a chance that Iran would get involved or what is it trying to achieve through its proxies? It seems deeply unlikely that Iran wants to engage in an escalated uh, regional conflict at this point. Now, Iran has been running these proxies for years. Uh, It's also, we now know, been funding Hamas to a different extent. Uh, Hezbollah and the Houthis in Yemen um, are direct proxies um, of Iran. Uh, It does seem that they've been funding Hamas for uh, in an escalated way for several years, but they did come out after the October 7th attacks and say, look, to Hamas leadership, you know, you launched this attack without our knowledge. We are not going to step up suddenly now and help you fight a war against Israel. So there's, been, you know, there's, of course, always a lot of rhetoric from Iran about Israel, but they don't seem to want to attack, uh, to engage in a full-scale conflict. Now, in the days after the October 7th attacks, Iran's foreign minister did a sort of Uh, war cabinet, essentially, where he travelled around the region. He went to Iraq, where they've got a lot of allies in the government uh, and the Shia-backed militias. He then tried to go to Syria. And on that day, uh, Israel attacked both Damascus and Aleppo airports to put them out of action so that he couldn't land, uh, is the theory of why they attacked both those that day. And he had to go around and then he turned up in Lebanon as well. So he was going around and sort of rallying the troops Uh, But beyond that, it does seem that it was just a kind of getting everyone on the same page, on the same message. There is no interest from Hezbollah in having a full-scale war right now. Uh, They are very highly militarized, but they're in a very strong position inside Lebanon uh, in the government when much of the country has fallen apart. And they simply cannot take the risk of a conflict in which lots and lots of Lebanese people would be killed. There's already mass panic and a lot of the south of Lebanon has cleared out. Now, if Israel launches that, that's quite different because it would be defensive and Hezbollah can say it's defensive. And we saw in Hassan Nasrallah's speech, the leader of Hezbollah uh, in November, that it was all very, uh, you know, lots of threatening statements as usual, but nothing directly saying in any way that he plans any specific kind of attack. And then with the Houthis, what they're reading, this is harassment. 
they are trying to make it impossible for Israel to get the supplies it needs, that it gets through that supply route. And also they're trying to anger the rest of the Arab world and make them, because of course we've seen normalization between lots of Arab countries and Israel recently, they're trying to make the rest of the Arab world feel that Israel once again are a problem, Israel are making their shipping routes impossible. Uh, Egypt is extremely frustrated because their Red Sea shipping routes and really the Suez Canal in particular uh, are the key to their economic recovery at the moment. Um, so the more vessels that are choosing not to take that route and go all the way around, uh, the less money they're making. So that's really the point of these attacks. It's less about uh, any possibility of launching a war because, of course, there's an enormous country, uh, Saudi Arabia, in between Yemen and the rest of these countries that are bunched together in the top around the Levant. Leila, thank you very much indeed. That's Leila Milana Allen there. And this is The Globalist. Twelve minutes past nine in Johannesburg, twelve minutes past seven here in London. Now, South Africa has been free of apartheid for 30 years. Nelson Mandela and the African National Congress were elected in the country's first multiracial election on April the 27th, 1994. But the atmosphere surrounding the upcoming 2024 poll could not be more different. I'm joined now by Feryl Hafaji, who's associate editor at The Daily Maverick in South Africa. Feriel, what went wrong? I wonder if you could walk us through from that honeymoon period in the Rainbow Nation to the sorry state of the country which can't keep the lights on. We know that the ANC has been in power all along, but the man at the top has changed. So how did the country fare under Thabo Mbeki? So broad brushstrokes. I think that the country from 1994 for about 10 years, I've written a book about it, it did quite well at modernizing itself, at bringing electricity to its people. I attended the first opening of taps for people to receive taps, the uh, reconstruction and development houses. This is a small house, but for many people, for over a million people, it meant huge things for the first time to own a piece of property. Um, I thought that South Africa established a place in the world quite well. But then I th- under President Thabo Mbeki, he made, life, he, he made life and death decisions with his people by, by denying AIDS for a long time until he was put right by his party. But I thought that his um, hand in establishing the African Union and modernizing the, the continent's political structures and unity um, was important. After that, Georgina, is when we hit the hard yards. Um, the years of state capture under the former president, Jacob Zuma, have been simply disastrous for our country. And, and try valiantly, as he has done, uh, the president, Cyril Ramaphosa, simply cannot um, reverse the very, the, the very dangerous path that South Africa went into. So we don't have regular electricity. Our logistic system um, is, is a nightmare. And for people, because we we survey audiences all year long, the fact that you, you don't have regular electricity is not just about being able to put a light on. It has detrimental impacts on your personal economy, on people's jobs and on their lives. Mm. Now, Jacob Zuma has just come out and made a statement about the upcoming elections. Tell us what he said and what the uh, what the fallout has been. So the 82-year-old former head of state, who who is actually the the number one accused in in a massive grand corruption inquiry, which took our country four years, came out at the weekend and said that 
he was still heart and soul an ANC man, but that he was putting his weight and his political authority behind a new, new party, which has just been formed. It's audacious, audaciously named for the Mkonto Wesizwe military arm of the ANC. Um, and the governing party is now looking to take it to court um, because they believe that they own the copyright, the brand of this former liberation army. I wonder how much support Zuma has. I mean, there was, I think, the biggest riots recently in South Africa happened in 2021, and that was in direct response to, to his arrest and, and, and so on. And it seems if he can, can mobilise people to rise up like that, he may be a real danger. So I've been looking at the numbers, and, and since then, um, the ANC in KwaZulu-Natal, which is the epicenter and where that awful violence happened, the ANC is now down in polls to about 22%. This is extremely low um, for, a, for, for its heartland. So I don't know that he'd be able to muster massive support in an actual poll, but what he could do is create instability and insecurity in a part of our country, which really is still a tinderbox. I was looking back at the Commission of Inquiry report into that 2021 violence, and it says that intra-ANC fighting is still the biggest security risk um, to violence in KwaZulu-Natal. So it's more that which I have my eyes on then to think that he has even the remotest chance um, of coming back as president through using this party. He's a really old man, Georgina. He couldn't even complete the reading of a very long press, press statement on Saturday. His daughter had to read it for him. Mm. Uh, yesterday on this programme, we were looking at Russian influence in Africa and highlighted that the South African election would be the next big one to watch. How present is Russia there? And is there a sense that this election could be influenced by Moscow? Um, so hugely present, um, Russia has just won a massive um, deal to refurbish gas works in South Africa. That was quite surprising and an end of year surprise in the economy. Um, we've also just put out a, a tender a request for proposals for nuclear. And there is some, um, there is a strong view that Rosatom, the Russian nuclear agency, might be in the front running to get that. Uh, Russia is a friend of South Africa. We're part of the BRICS countries um, with Russia, and that starts up. The BRICS expanded group starts up properly uh, come January. There has been one attempt by disinformation networks to infiltrate the information system of South Africa's last election. Um, it failed miserably because, thank goodness, we have really, really good um, disinformation experts, and, and I hope that they would be able to both spot that and and deal with it quickly. Mm. But it certainly is a risk on, on, on the horizon of those of us who watch these things. Now, South Africans have a reputation for fighting for their rights, and there's still a strong press with fearless journalists like, like you and, and the Daily Maverick. Can democracy prevail? What is the best and most likely outcome for 2024? You know, we have a really strong um, independent electoral commission, which has stood the test of time with we of 30 years of elections. It's highly regarded in the world. 
um, we have to ensure, and there are many, many civil society organizations um, now springing up to protect the integrity of this election. It's an important one because it's the first time that the ANC's hegemonic position in South Africa is going to be significantly challenged. Um, most polls, even by election results, are showing that we are headed into an era of, of coalitions in South Africa, probably nationally, and then certainly in at least two provinces. So the ANC is going to have to share power for the first time. Will it do so? It has already done so because it's lost a lot of major cities in, in local polls. But I think this is going to be an important election, an important election to watch. But to my money, I don't think that that, that we could see an authoritarian takeover or a coup or anything. But certainly we have to be all eyes on this election. Feriel Hafji, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Now, still to come on the programme... Hi, I'm Carlotta Robello and I'll be here to talk about the new leader of the Portuguese Socialist Party replacing outgoing Prime Minister António Costa and what Pedro Nuno Santos might mean for the upcoming election. Do stay tuned. This is The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio with me, Georgina Godwin, and we'll continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Charles Hecker, Senior Partner at Control Risk. Good morning to you, Charles. Good morning, Georgina. Uh, Volcano in Iceland. Now, the last time there was a huge explosion in Iceland, it disrupted air travel across the world for weeks and weeks. Uh, What do we know about this one? That's right. So we're going to the Washington Post because this is across all of the newspapers today um, because the volcano that has long been anticipated to erupt in Iceland is now erupting. Um, There are a few things to say up front, and that is that meteorologists and forecasters and geologists do not anticipate the same kind of ash cloud that happened last time. There was a major disruption, um, eruption that disrupted air travel for days on end. And that's because that volcano in the past, it was about 10 years ago, erupted under a glacier. And when volcanoes erupt under glaciers, they throw up a different type of ash cloud than the current volcano. So while the current volcano is quite serious, um, we don't anticipate that sort of disruption. The other thing that people are concerned about is that it's near the Blue Lagoon, which is a very famous tourist attraction, and it's near an important energy plant in Iceland. Both of those facilities for the time being appear to be safe. Um, but I would encourage anybody who has you know, quick access to getting online and having a look at this or look through the, the very graphic illustrations in the paper, this is a fantastic reminder of this vast boiling stew that's cooking underneath the Earth's surface and has now bubbled up to the surface. Um, Well done to Iceland for all of the advanced planning and the evacuation uh, because there was a string of earthquakes that led up to this. What the Washington Post says this morning that's super interesting is that the eruption was immediately preceded by something called an earthquake storm. Which is? 
So this is just when everything starts to kick off and the ground opened up. There is a crack in the earth now that is 13,000 feet long. Don't ask me to convert that right away into meters, um, but that's several miles long and the crack is expected to expand by yet another mile long. Um, both it's heading sort of north and south at each end. Um, and, and lava initially was flowing out at the rate of hundreds of cubic meters per second. Um, again, don't ask me to convert that into sort of bowls of, of, of lava or anything like that, but it's an enormous amount of magma just coming straight out of the bottom of the earth. Wow. Well, in life and death situations like that, people are often tempted to make huge decisions like getting married. Uh, and for Catholics in Iceland uh, who are in same-sex relationships, that is now possible, or at least it's possible to receive a blessing in church. The Pope has reversed his decision on same-sex marriage. That's right. We're going to the New York Times now in a decision that just happened yesterday um, from Pope Francis, um, the head of the Catholic Church. And, and the headline there is Pope Francis allows priests to bless same-sex couples. Um, the Pope is walking a very fine line here. And, and while this is an enormous leap forward that devout Catholics who wish to have their unions blessed will welcome enormously, um, the church has taken the decision that these have to sort of be separate blessings and that can't be conducted as if they were a wedding or during any sort of ceremony that resembles a wedding or even uses any of the liturgical text that might accompany a wedding. Um, that said, same-sex couples can go within their local diocese um, to their priest and, and ask him to bless their union. That priest can now do that with the blessing himself of the pope. Um, predictably, this has caused a bit of controversy. Um, there's a very conservative wing of the church in the United States that is none too pleased with this. Um, and then many of the dioceses in Africa, um, which tend to be much more conservative and traditional within the Catholic Church themselves also um, have come out against this. And I think what's interesting is that the Catholics are clearly being led here by the Anglicans who did the same thing recently. Well, that's right. And so the Times tells us about what's happened in other churches and in, in, in other um, in Protestant sects around the world. And that is that the Anglican, Anglican Church has moved forward with this, again, to the dismay of some of its other um, conservative wings. Um, the Methodist Church is about to come split in half over this. Um, the Presbyterian Church um, continues to discuss and debate um, this issue and has and, and the Presbyterian Church, the Times says, has seen a conservative breakaway um, within that sect. Um, and what's interesting is that the, the, the Catholic Church, uh, the Times says, was, was anticipated to be an incredible laggard in this type of, of, of social advance. And here it has come out saying this is now all fine globally. Uh, except in Russia, of course, where the, the Russian Orthodox Church would, would be very, very much against this, as is the state. Now, speaking of Russia, the European Union has adopted a new package of sanctions on the country. Tell us more about that. That's right. We're going to the Moscow Times now with a headline that says the EU adopts new round of sanctions on Russia. Um, this was much anticipated. This is the 12th packet 
of sanctions at, uh, leveled against Russia since the outbreak of the full invasion uh, last year against Ukraine. Um, the key issue here and the most anticipated move in this packet of sanctions is going to be a ban on the import of diamonds from Russia. And and this is two important things. This is not just diamonds that we typically think about in the use of jewelry, but it's um, diamonds in industrial use. Um, and Russia is a leader in that market and earns somewhere between four and five billion dollars a year in the export of diamonds. And the EU has said no more to that. Um, as we know, with everything else um, involving EU action against Russia in connection with the war, this is based on consensus uh, because we had Hungary just the other day rejecting a financial aid package to Ukraine. Belgium, which is one of the world's centers of diamond trade, also came out against this measure and was a bit of a hold, you know, was holding back against passing this. Um, what the Moscow Times tells us is that the rest of the G7 will support the diamond ban. So this won't only impact Belgium, it will impact all of the world's diamond trading centers. And Belgium lifted its objections and the whole thing went through yesterday. And I mean, what's really interesting about this is a lot of these diamonds are not actually being mined in Russia itself. They're from the ex extractive industries that they are uh, indulging in across Africa. So this effectively halts that route, doesn't it? That's right. What we've learned about this is that the diamond industry is incredibly globalized and has an extremely complex supply chain, as you've been suggesting. And that is that there are diamonds that are mined in one place processed in another and sold in a third country and then used in yet a fourth country. And there are intersections between Russia and Africa, other parts of Asia, um, Europe, the United States. And um, this at least now um, cuts the supply chain of any diamond that traces at least its origins um, to under the ground in Russia. Yeah. Well, there are, of course, other ways for Russians to make money, and one of those is cyber hacking. The British Library has become one of the latest victims. I say latest, but this has been going on for many weeks now. Ransomware installed by, we think, a Russian group. Uh, and um, the British Library, this great institution, one of the biggest libraries in the world, I know a place where you like to work daily, uh, has become a victim. That's right. The Times moves this story forward a little bit with a really, really interesting angle under the headline that says, Hidden Victims of the British Library Hack, 20,000 Authors. And interestingly, this is not authors who are in the British Library researching their work. This is 20,000 authors who once a year receive a royalty payment from the British Library and processed by the British Library. That um, This is a payment that comes in, in correspondence with how many people actually check out their books, much in the same way that, that performing artists, I guess, get a royalty when their music is played on the radio. Authors get a royalty when their book is taken out of the library. Um, and... In late October, the British Library was hacked by a group called Residia, which investigators are tracing back to Russia, and the hack brought the entire house down. Um, I have been spending the better part of the entire past year in the British Library researching my own book, um, and, and this hack has turned the British Library into a barn, a very beautiful, very elaborate, much beloved barn. Um, but of the 170 million items that are available for examination in the British Library, precisely zero of them are now available. Um, I'm exaggerating only slightly. There are some books on the walls, literally, that you can take down and have a flip through. 
but the overwhelming majority of the British Library's vast resources um, are completely unavailable. And what is also unavailable is the computer system that pays out these royalties. Mm. And I mean, in terms of the unavailability of these works, that brings into question all sorts of things about how we archive and digitally store work, because if this is possible, unless we keep the originals, we could be losing huge amounts of not only literature, but records and so on. Well, that's right, because there's another piece in the Times um, from just a day or so ago that talked about another set of, of government archives that are going to be put online and digitized. And, and by and large, we think of this as a good thing. You know, we're getting rid of paper and that takes up space and that nobody has the time to flip through and we're doing everything on our laptops anyway. And in light of the hack of the British Library, it has been suggested that this mass digitization upcoming of a set of government archives should should go ahead by all means. But just as you suggest, the destruction of the paper originals is something that you may want to reconsider or at the very least, and I'm saying this sort of openly to myself and to everybody else who's a user of the British Library, back it up. Mm. Charles, I fear this could lead, lead us into tinfoil hat territory. So I think I think perhaps we better we better leave it there. But if you're building a bunker, can I come? <laughs> you're more than welcome. <laughs> Charles Hecker, thank you very much indeed. Now here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. A magnitude 6.2 earthquake jolted a remote and mountainous area of northwest China in the early hours of this morning, killing at least 118 people and injuring hundreds more. Authorities have mobilized an array of emergency responses, but rescue work could prove challenging in sub-zero temperatures. Tokyo prosecutors searched the offices of two powerful political factions within the ruling Liberal Democratic Party, the LDP, today, in connection with the biggest fundraising scandal to engulf the party in decades. The scandal has eroded public support for the LDP and Prime Minister Fumio Kishida's government, whose poll rating this weekend fell to around 20%, the lowest for any Japanese Prime Minister in more than a decade. And international pressure is building over a landmark national security trial in Hong Kong Kong for leading China critic Jimmy Lai, with British authorities calling for consular access to the jailed Democrat as his trial entered its second day today. The trial has become a diplomatic focal point and a key test for the financial hub's judicial independence and freedoms, with diplomats including those from the US, UK, European Union, Canada and Australia in attendance. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Now, the effects of an ageing population are already being felt by many industrialised nations around the world, and the economic impact of this is particularly stark. As part of the Our Ageing World series we're running all this week on The Globalist, today we're looking into these economic implications of demographic change, as countries face up to a decline in the working age population, increased healthcare costs, as well as unstable pension commitments. Earlier, Monocle's Andrew Muller spoke to Professor Norbert Miners, an affiliate research fellow at Oxford University and an expert in the field of economics and population ageing. Andrew began by asking whether we're already seeing economic impacts of ageing populations. The economic and social implications of an ageing population are becoming increasingly apparent in many industrial nations around the globe. And with populations in places such as Western Europe, North America and Japan aging more rapidly than ever before, 
policymakers are confronted with several interrelated issues. By this, I mean, in particular, a decline in the working age population, increased health care costs and unsustainable pension commitments, and last but not least, changing demand drivers within the economy. A couple of things there to pick up on. That idea of a, a declining working age population as people get older, do we need to rethink what we mean by working age populations? Is there any real reason why otherwise healthy people cannot and indeed should not expect to go on working into their mid-70s? Oh, yes. I think raising the retirement age is one way, one possible way of counteracting the consequences of demographic change. In Germany, for example, the standard retirement age is being raised from 65 to 67 by 2031. However, advertisers to the German governments have already proposed raising the retirement age to 68, and some economics go even further and call the retirement age in this country, in Germany, to be raised to 70s. Nevertheless, are people finding positive aspects to the idea that people are living longer and perhaps working longer? Because if people are working longer, and again, obviously, this is contingent on them enjoying reasonably good health, it means they're creating longer, they're participating longer, they're consuming longer, they're still integrated into the economy, and they're not just waiting for everybody else to underwrite a decades-long holiday for them. Yes, that is true. And for example, the seniors in the USA generate 41% of all disposable income, and they earn $2.5 trillion annually, while the under 34 groups earns $1 trillion. And they buy 60% of all packaged goods, 56% of all new cars, and 80% of leisure travel. I mean, are you starting to notice, though, companies are beginning to wake up to that kind of thing and realise that, you know, that there is still a useful and responsive target audience past the age of 40? I mean, I, I have lived long enough myself that you start to notice when TV advertising stops being aimed at you because they assume you've already made up your mind about more or less everything. Are you seeing that shift as people realise that there are other demographics they could be pitching to? Well, in the 1990s and 1980s, there were still many prejudices in marketing and sales against older consumers. Some of these prejudices were, for example, that older consumers are hard to reach with advertising, older consumers are not cool, or older consumers don't spend money. Decision makers in marketing and sales thought too much in terms of age groups and stereotypes. But slowly, however, we are overcoming these stereotypes and advertisers of today takes into account that older people want to be seen and treated as people rather than being defined by age. And I think today we see ads with fun-loving seniors with products that express their joy of life. And I think that is a change in the advertising industry, and it was a swift to the elderly group. Professor Norbert Miners there in conversation with Monocle's Andrew Muller. You're with Monocle Radio. (laughs) 
It is 8.38 in Zurich, 7.38 in Lisbon. It's been a tumultuous end of the year for the Portuguese government. A corruption probe forced Prime Minister Antonia Costa to step down, triggering early elections and leaving a question mark over who will be Portugal's new leader. Well, one man vying for the top job is Pedro Nuno Santos, who's been chosen as the new leader of the country's Socialist Party. Well, Carlotta Rebello is Monocle's senior foreign correspondent. She's also Portuguese and she has more on this story. Uh, Carlotta, thanks for, for, for stepping into the studio. What happened? Good morning, Georgina. Yes, so over the weekend, the Socialist Party in Portugal elected its new leader with, of course, the resignation of Antonio Costa, the uh, outgoing prime minister. It triggered this leadership contest within uh, the party. Now, it elected Pedro Nuno Santos. Uh, he will be the one leading the socialists who are now currently in government still uh, into the election, uh, the snap election that's been called for March 10th, 2024. And uh, he's quite an interesting candidate. So he is considered to be more within the left wing of the party, of the socialist party. Uh, he is uh, quite young for Portuguese uh, standards when it comes to party leaders. He's a 46-year-old old former infrastructure minister, actually uh, one of the key figures in charge of deciding the location of the new airport and um, of upgrading uh, rail lines in the country. He was part of Antonio Costa's government uh, initially. And more importantly, he is known for successfully coordinating uh, the support um, in the parliament for Antonio Costa's very first government, which was a minority government, but with this sort of party agreement with other parties on the left, the uh, left bloc and the communists and the greens, which allowed Costa to come into power for the in the first place. Mm. So this is someone that is very well regarded within the party. And it, it is quite interesting that uh, uh, party members have gone for someone more on the left rather than uh, someone considered more moderate. So what does that mean then for the election? Well, it means now that it really is going to be an election that is going to be centred on right versus left. Uh, If the other um, um, uh, candidate had been elected, that was José Luis Carneiro in the Socialist Party, um, it would be maybe a face-off between two moderate facets within the two parties. But this is really going to be a a, a decisive moment for the Portuguese electorate to decide whether they want to continue this trajectory of the past eight years of governing, of having a socialist left-wing government, or if it's time for the opposition to come back in. Now, the the Social Democrats, the opposition, is in quite a bit of disarray. Um, While they have uh, had the same party leader, he's not considered uh, widely as someone who could be prime minister. So there is questions over whether that will trigger a leadership contest there too. Now, the big question here as well is, of course, the role that the far right can play here. Because if, um, as I was saying, if the electorate decides to shift towards a right government, even if it's centre-right, they might not have enough votes to uh, become um, the government outright. So there is questions whether a coalition with the far right might be possible. And this is quite dangerous. You know, um, the fact that Antonio Costa stepped down with a corruption probe has only fueled um, more, um, I guess, uh, propaganda and arguments on the far right to fire up their electorate. Um, And this is really going to be a decisive election for the future of Portugal and which way uh, it will go. And what happens to Costa? Well, Costa, before all of this, was tipped to be uh, 
someone who would go for an European top job. Uh, and now it has left this wide open because um, his involvement or not in this corruption probe uh, has displeased the EU. But it is emerging that he might be innocent in the middle of all of this. So if that gets proven in due time, we might still see him uh, heading over to Brussels. Carlotta, thank you very much indeed. That was Monocle's Carlotta Rebello, and this is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Now it's time for a roundup of news from the built environment with urban affairs commentator Kat Hanna. Welcome back to the studio, Kat. Uh, we're going to start in uh, Portland. Tell us uh, about this exodus of business that's happening there. Yeah, so this is a piece from the New York Times actually looking um, at proposed and potential changes uh, to legislation around drug use um, and decriminalisation in Portland. So as the piece highlights, um, you know, Oregon, you know, has often been kind of a bit of a poster child, I guess, around, you know, decriminalisation, particularly possession of small amounts of drugs. But actually looking in terms of what's been happening, particularly in the city centre in Portland, it sort of refers to a beleaguered urban core, challenges around retail businesses leaving the area. And one of the reasons cited for that is particularly public drug use and obviously impact that's also having on crime as well. And so what are they doing to get people back into the city? So what the piece really focuses on is actually a kind of legislation piece. Um, So looking at revising what the current legislation to really restrict public drug use with, I think, the the aim that that would reduce some of, I guess, the most obvious antisocial and criminal behaviour. But also looking, are there some measures you can actually do to encourage some of those retail businesses back into the city? So that might be things like tax relief as well, to really support that footfall that is generated from retail, rather than, I think, you know, moving away from this focus on what has become quite severe issues around addiction and homelessness. Yeah. Uh, Let's hop over to the City of London now. And One Lime Street, of course is an iconic building uh, and it's home to Lloyd's of London and there was some question over whether it would actually stay in that building but the answer is yes or at least for the time being. Yes, absolutely. So this is a, a piece I think out on the weekend in the Financial Times which is highlighting that there has been a, a commitment to stay put until at least 2035 um, by Lloyd's and that's really seen as both I think a commitment to a lot of the in-person trading still happening you know, face-to-face but actually also about feeling that Lloyds can make this building work from them. As the article highlights, you know, there will be um, some amendments made, you know, to the building, particularly looking at its, you know, energy performance, but the feeling that there is a commitment to stay in what, as you said, is a very iconic building, not just for Lloyds, but actually the City of London as a whole. Mm. Let's look at Eurotunnel now, and where all those busy bankers who are going backwards and forwards 
forwards to the city uh, are spending a lot of time because they're going to have a lot more options now. Absolutely. So this was a a piece in The Independent highlighting uh, the potential for an increased number of direct rail links from London, but to a number of cities in Europe. So I think some of those are mentioned around Geneva, Cologne, Frankfurt, like you said, very helpful for a lot of those uh, financial types. Um, But actually looking at where are cities where people may now fly, and, you know, as, as the piece states, it's looking at what could some of those low carbon mobility options between the UK and the rest of Europe be. As the piece highlights, it's you're not just about the actual tunnel itself and finding capacity and room in the tunnel for alternative operators. You've also got to make sure there's room for these people to get off and on those trains as well, um, with a feeling that while St Pancras is really quite full we can hopefully squeeze a bit more space in there to make that work. Mm. And interesting that it is opening to other operators. I mean, this is going to change uh, Eurotunnel's business model, isn't it? Absolutely. So, you know, the piece is obviously looking at you've got Eurotunnel that run the infrastructure of the tunnel, you've got the parent company that owns the tunnel, and then you've got the operators as well. And, you know, what we're keen to highlight is actually it is possible to have new entrants coming in. We can look at some of that competition with Eurostar. And I guess one would hope that would have, a, a you know, um, a benefit both in terms of performance of existing arrangements, but as you said, that wider option um, of where we can go to as well. Mm. And of course, we're seeing this in our cities too. It's not only flying that we're t- turning against, it's also so the car uh, and the Guardian has a, a piece on this. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I kind of chose this piece thinking, you know, we've probably spoken quite a lot this year um, about measures um, around, you know, restricting car use or encouraging alternative uses. So quite a nice piece in the Guardian, just looking at three cities in particular in Europe. So it's Barcelona, Brussels, and Paris, and looking at what are the different measures um, that have been brought in there and how are they working. And generally, the feeling is positive but actually about the importance of carrots as well as sticks about investment you know in public transport rather than just restriction but also highlighting some of the difficult politics that are involved and again I think we've been you know no strangers to that in London as well. Mm. So it breaks them down and in Paris it says that there's a startling statistic that during the morning and evening rush hours uh, uh, there are now more bicycles than cars uh, almost half as many again in fact. Yeah absolutely and I think you know the the increase in bike use has been you know phenomenal um i think in in paris um not least the fact there's been around a thousand kilometers of bike routes um have been added around a third of those are also completely protected as well so again that piece about investment in infrastructure being particularly important and again not just bringing in restrictions to mm. car use and in barcelona the newspaper el pais uh, timed a say the same eight kilometer journey across barcelona by car motorbike bicycle and public transport the motorbike one yes and what was quite interesting i i thought in the um in the section on barcelona was actually that something i didn't know the city actually has the highest density of cars in the eu and has suffered you know particularly badly in terms of you know air pollution and noise pollution so this a piece highlights pedestrianizing some of those major streets has been really important but we have also seen in a new mayor that's come in a shift towards i guess more of that rhetoric around being pro car so potentially some pushbacks against what we've seen brought in in the past um, few years under mayor Colau. and and looking at brussels uh, europe's eighth most polluted city uh, apparently um, trips by bike make up 10% of the total, but we're also uh, they're also talking here about a large amount of company cars, and this, of course, would be sort of obviously headquarters of the EU. A lot of bankers there too. Uh, lots of people being whizzed about in limousines. Yes, absolutely, and I, that was something I definitely noted in the piece. Although it does also pick up an increase in public transport as well. So again, it's a question of who is getting out of those cars and onto other modes, and who isn't. Um, 
But actually, one thing again highlights in Brussels, which is something we see increasingly happening in London, is actually not so much just political challenge in terms of who wants to do what, but actually whose responsibility is it and who has the authority to make these decisions when you've got a number of municipalities plus some sort of regional governance as well, and who is it that's really setting that leadership and ambition? Because I think what you can see if you look to Barcelona, if you look to Paris, and I think I'd say this of London as well, really strong leadership and ambition has been quite critical, I think, to pushing through a lot of these measures, which aren't always popular, particularly mm. at the beginning when they're brought in. Yeah, I mean, Anne Hildago in Paris, I mean, she had this massive war on street furniture and everything, and it was very divisive. Um, but the Barcelona mayor seems to be doing great things. Yes, although, as, this, as the piece highlights, um, you know, there has been a new, new mayor um, voted in recently that looks to be pushing back on a lot of um, what I think was seen by, you know, as I said, Mayor Colau, who has, I think, been particularly um, determined in terms of reducing car use. Yeah, Kat Hanna, thank you very much indeed. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. Become a Monocle Magazine subscriber today and enjoy 10% off any annual subscription. It's time to get a truly global view that's upbeat and optimistic. Monocle has plenty more in store for 2023 that will keep you informed, entertained and, of course, ahead of the game. With a global roster of correspondents and bureau, we deliver stories that you won't find elsewhere. Expect insights on everything from diplomacy and design to art and architecture and more. Sign up today and you'll receive 10 issues and seasonal specials full of inspiration. Visit monocle.com slash subscribe and enter the code radio 10 to redeem this offer. As we near the end of the year, we thought we'd take advantage of Monocle's US editor, Chris Lord's presence in London, home for Christmas, and ask him to look at the last 12 months in the media there, which has been experiencing a lot of churn, Chris. There's been reports of really uh, unprecedented job losses in the media. Tell us more. Yeah, incredible uh, year, I think, for the entire industry. I mean, just to trot through a few of those extraordinary and very sad layoffs that were made in the last 12 months. You know, vast swathes of the Washington Post are going to be, uh, have been announced in terms of layoffs. You've had Vice Media all but uh, file for bankruptcy and huge amounts of layoffs there. You've got major old uh, institutions like Condé Nast cut in 5% of their workforce. It's been a, a real year of reckoning, I think, for a media industry that through the pandemic saw a big boom. Uh, and what we're, I think what we're seeing now is some correction going on, certainly in terms of the way ad spend is happening um, and how that's trickling down to newsrooms. So where is that advertising money going? So, as I say, what happened during COVID, there was a, there was a boom. And so there was a moment where everybody was glued to their screens in at home, subscribing at, at speed to lots of different publications and that translated into a surge of money into the ad market um, and that ad market as well we should say is it was a mix of digital and print and and video and there was a kind of there was a really there was a sort of across the board boom of it now we're in a period where uh, there's two two factors at work I think firstly uh, that that's a correction people are not quite as glued to their screens as they were during that period so the ad sales in that way are coming down we're also in a period of uh, a tricky 
uh, economic picture, which is often a time when the way advertising happens changes. It goes from being uh, those big, slightly more uh, complex campaigns into how do we get direct sales? That's what brands often want when they're when the outlook uh, economically is different. Um, but on a very, very simple level, you know, we have to understand that the way advertisers see value has changed, unfortunately. And, and it's it, not to be too simplistic about it, but the video, the short video format is just eating a lot of lunches right now. And TikTok continues uh, to, to suck out a lot of the oxygen from the room. Now, that's right now. That doesn't mean that's going to be always the case. I think we're in a moment where, um, you know, X or Twitter has really seen its um, uh, ad share be eclipsed. And now these small, short videos and, and YouTube and, and TikTok and so on are really seeing the benefit of that. Um, I think there is one more factor here that work, which is what's being called subscription fatigue, which is that over the last few years, especially again during COVID, there was this big um, push of people signing on for lots of different things. And now, of course, that's largely about streaming services online. But I think that also extends to magazines, to uh, to online publications. And now there's a little bit of a correction. Am I getting what I want from that? Yeah. So what would you say then were the major news sources for the American public? I mean, demographically, of course, we know that younger people tend to go for TikTok and so on. But people who are invested in voting, uh, I'm talking, I guess, adults. <laughs> Where do grown-ups get their news? Well, I think what's happened a lot with the news in the US is it's become tastemakers of news rather than actual sources of news, if you will. And I I still am amazed by the power of, frankly, the podcast personality to shape people's news opinions. I hear so much in conversation, people referencing Joe Rogan as as a real way of... Uh, of thinking about how politics and how the world is run and so on. And I think as we get into this election cycle that's coming up in 2024, that's going to be even more important than ever. And you can see how certain candidates who've, who've seen that. I mean, Ron DeSantis, you know, he's done very little you know, legacy interviews. He's not actually done the Times, or he's, or he's not done uh, the Washington Post, but he has done Russell Brand, Brand's podcast, obviously, before his latest travails. But mm-hmm. as in, they see the value of speaking to these personalities as a way to cut through the sort of legacy media and, frankly, some of the checks and balances that come with that. Yeah. Um, so I think a lot of, uh, a, a sort of, a lot of um, consumers of news do that. I think also, I, sh- I would say there's a few bright things. I think that what has happened is that there is an emerging... Um, sector of what I would call sort of newsletter news that's becoming quite quite important. Um, the, the original was Politico, you know, when they have their playbooks. Incredibly useful intel and insider intel um, about what's happening. I think anyone who cares about politics really in the US will know how important those newsletters are, and here in Westminster as well. But I think also now you've got um, players like Semaphore, which is a new media outlet, which opened amid the bad outlook for the media that we were just talking about that was run by two executives one ex new york times one ex bloomberg they've made a sort of daily newsletter that is first of all getting lots of readers which is good and it's growing and, and it's looking good but they're getting some pretty highbrow advertising as well big brands that are willing to say well if this lands in someone's inbox every morning then we kind of not only do we know it's it's going somewhere it's not just going into the ether of the internet but it's we can also probably find out who's reading it. We mm. probably know who's who's seeing it. And then where I am in, in Los Angeles, you have a new media outfit called Puck, P-U-C-K, uh, which largely reports on entertainment news, but also uh, sort of insider news about media and also um, uh, and some politics as well. And again, it's that newsletter mo- idea, this idea that you're... you're 
you're, you're circumventing just the website and the splash page. You're actually sending something direct to the consumer that then they can read and then they delete and they get that feeling that they've got that. And it's insider knowledge, Georgina. That's becoming the key thing these days. Can you say to the readers, we're in the room, we've got the original take? Absolutely. And we shouldn't forget that, of course, we have our own uh, um, newsletter. That is the Monocle Minute. Uh, and you can subscribe to that at our website. Uh, Chris Lord, thanks very much for joining us here on The Globalist. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Carlotta Rabella and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, our researcher, Nanoma Ekwe, and our studio manager, Callum McLean. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. I'll be back on The Briefing, that's live at midday London time, and in between, lots of sharp programming and great Christmas music uh, to carry you through. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.